The John Hay Center, located in picturesque Salem, Indiana, is the centerpiece of an amazing six-acre history and educational complex. The John Hay Center painstakingly preserves a historical collection that began nearly 150 years ago. We talked about this great museum complex before, but this time we wanted to focus on its railroad museum. No trip to the John Hay Center is complete without a stop at the Depot Railroad Museum, home of a replica of the town's train depot that preserves the history of the Monon Railroad whilst keeping alive the story of its creation by four Salem men who set out to build a railroad. Here at the podcast, we love history you can experience firsthand. And the Depot Railroad Museum provides that in spades. In the basement, you'll find an 800 square foot HO scale model train layout of the three prominent towns of the county of the 1950s. Also, get hands-on experience with an authentic, restored 1928 Monon caboose and imagine yourself as a brakeman or even a conductor. For those of you seeking a deeper historical dive, be sure to schedule an appointment to view the Monon Historical Society archives for yourself. Be sure to visit their website, www.johnhayscenter.org, or follow them on their Facebook pages, or just search for John Hay Center or the Depot Railroad Museum, and you can view their calendar of events and keep up with their festival schedule, featuring a wide array of events for folks of all ages. Thank you again to the John Hay Center and the Depot Railroad Museum for their support of the show and keeping history alive. They do a phenomenal job bringing history to life by providing incredible glimpses into the past. And it's an honor to get their name out there and share their story, and we definitely hope to see you there soon. Louise Fazenda is, in her feminine way, much like Charlie Chaplin. Eternally the same yet always different. Like him, she stands in a class by herself. She has created a character which is hers and hers alone, writes Marion Lake for Film Play Journal. Hello everyone and welcome back to Movie Time with the assistance of our agricultural film subdivision of the Golden Silence Films podcast. Watching farm movies is the life for us, and we hope you'll also dig this fun farm film starring legendary comedian Louise Fazenda. Before we say goodbye, City Life, let's celebrate the new year and the new season. With the changing of the calendar, we find ourselves ready to embark on our Season 3 premiere. Our little chat today represents Episode 1 of Season 3, but is overall Episode 29. It means so much to us here at the Golden Silent Films Podcast that you fine listeners are still hanging out with us and have been for over two years. We've got a lot of fun stories lined up for this third season and can't wait to share them with you. But in the meantime, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. As usual, do follow the Golden Silence cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little show. And for everyone on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence 1, that's at Golden Silence and the number 1, or just search Golden Silence Cast and you will find us. And these sites and screen names will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out. And as always, we would love to have you on board. At both of these social spaces, you will get behind-the-scenes picks and info, upcoming episode previews, and other fun and cool silent movie-related materials. And also some great photos of a pair of former farm cats. Also, if you're listening to this program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, 
please leave a review, a rating, or both. All of those ratings and reviews help a ton. Recently, the show just crossed the 5,000 listen mark, and we hope to keep that number moving up as we move into 2023. And as we move into the time of resolutions, as we t- move into the time of doing stuff, how about you put leaving ratings and reviews on your resolution list for our little show? You can live that little review leaving life and help our little show grow, whether getting us more exposure in the vast golden fields of podcasts or letting us know what we can do better. We appreciate the feedback and endeavor to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can be seemingly feast or famine, if you are subscribed, you will never miss an episode. And the moment we release new content, it will be downloaded right to your brain via your listening device of choice. We have a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe, and we don't want you to miss a second. So, with that out of the way, let's talk about the version of Down on the Farm we will be talking about today. This one, like many before, was found on YouTube, and we were really lucky to get a great version with quite a bit of TLC, especially on the soundtrack front. The opening screen when we watch this tells us it's from the Museum of Modern Art Film Library. The picture on this version was really quite good, and it looked fantastic and sounded incredible. This copy came in at a nice, slim, trim 50 minutes, give or take. Like I said a second ago, this flick sounded fantastic. When you catch these movies on YouTube or other streaming services, you never know exactly what you're going to get. Some have terrible music just stuck on the film, or you get no music at all. On the plus side of things, sometimes you get a public domain music, one with public domain music thoughtfully added to the movie. It's a crapshoot, but this time was one in which we, the viewers, won. For Down on the Farm, we got music composed and performed by Donald Sosen. And what great music it was. It fit the movie perfectly and had me hooked early on. After the movie ends, you get credits for the folks behind this version. And there are actually quite a lot of names. You can tell a lot of work and love went into making this exist. It had producers, associate producers, post-production, the whole nine yards. And with some, well, some YouTube offerings can be hit or miss, we can safely tell you that this version is worth a watch. It got a great treatment and deserves to be seen. This is definitely a hit here at the Golden Silent Films podcast offices, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Before we fully farm up, let's look at some of the folks behind Down on the Farm during the actual making. We talked a little bit about the people that made this recreation, this uh, re working with music and such. We talked about that had some names, but let's talk about the actual names of the people that made this film exist in the first place. First, we're going to start this biographical breakdown with the reason for this episode. Now, I had started seeing the name Luis Fazenda pop up here and there as I watched movies and did research on other episodes. Eventually, though, I decided it was time to finally find out more about her and pass that info on to all of you awesome listeners out there. Now, Louise Marie Fazenda was born in her grandparents' house in Lafayette, Indiana, on June 17, 1895, or 1896, depending on what your source of information is. She was the daughter and only child of merchandise broker Joseph A. Fazenda and Nelda T. Schilling. Life as a Hoosier was short for Fazenda. I moved from West Lafayette when I was five months old and did not return again until I was six. That was my last visit. Did I have stage ambitions early in life? Not at all. After I had just entered college, I had my mind set on being a school teacher. But bad luck in a business venture proved disastrous to the family, and I was forced to leave school after my first year. 
So I gave up the teaching idea, Fazenda recounted to reporter Milton Potlitzer in a December 1920 edition of the Journal and Courier. That move and relocation from Indiana would take, Fazenda, would take the Fazenda family to California, where Daddy Fazenda opened up a grocery store. Louise's schooling would come at Los Angeles High School, and her spare time was spent at St. Mary's Convent, and she kept busy with a number of after-school jobs, one of which was delivering groceries for the family business via a horse-drawn wagon. Before trying motion pictures, she worked for a dentist, a candy store owner, even a tax collector. Eventually, though, in a search for a few extra bucks for the family, Louise took a shot at business. At show business, to be more specific. Louise explains, We needed money, and a stock company at Long Beach, California was not far from home. I think I lasted two or three weeks. She goes on to tell a funny story about her film debut. Louise told the Journal and Courier, Then a neighbor told me about a moving picture company. The first time I went out, they were making a two-reeler. The romance of the Utah pioneers. Indians were chasing Mormons and things. I got there too late, she continued. All the wigs were gone. I sat down and cried. An assistant director, they were much kinder in those days than now, came over and told me, if I stayed in the background and kept the light off my blonde hair, I could play a blonde Indian. I made $2.50 that first day and $7.50 the first week. I played bits in these films and then went with Marion Leonard's company. The first week there, I made $28. After a brief stop at Universal, Fazenda would soon be in the employ of Max Sennett and his legendary studio. Fazenda recounts her start with Sennett thusly. The first role I had there was playing the part of a mother to Max Swain. I tried to put on makeup and I didn't know a thing about it. I drew my hair back tightly, put on a pair of gray shaggy eyebrows and got them on crooked padded properly, and went out on that set scared to death. I must have been a fright, she continued. Senate gave one look, said something, and then asked, Who let that in? Perhaps you think my heart didn't sink. And I was further disappointed because I did not get the part. But I was kept on playing bits from time to time. Bits is the way one arrives. The length of bits increased until, well, I am where I am. My first real hit came at the Senate studio, and I was given it because I could shoot a gun without shutting my eyes or turning my head. Some of the bits there were with his bathing girls. Fazenda would always be self-conscious at this point in her career, especially being surrounded by those famous Senate bathing beauties. She once said, I was very sensitive at the time, and whenever they referred to me in story conferences or on set as the homely girl, I felt terribly hurt. My, how I envied the bathing beauties. So, her first role came in 1913, but it was her time with Senate that made her a star. Senate could help incorporate Fazenda's gift for slapstick comedy into the super popular Keystone Cop shorts. Between the years 1915 and 1917, she rose quickly up the ladder, playing many working class roles like maids, cooks, flower girls, nurses, even a fortune teller. These experiences during this era of her career would bring the creation and cultivation of her famous on-screen persona. Her on-screen persona was often seen in her distinctive style of dress, a, play, a plaid or calico dress, old high-top shoes, and two pigtails wound into knots high on her head with a spit curl over her forehead. She is a little baffling, this Louise, that she in her gingham aprons, her absurd front curl and pigtails bunched over her ears, her cotton stockings and tattered shoes, her roll of ugly duckling, not only existed through the mad craze for bathing beauties, but actually thrived on it was proof enough to us 
that she had the divine spark somewhere within her, writes Marion Lake in her article, A Few Phases of Fazenda for Film Play Journal. Even though she became known for her iconic look and character, she wasn't opposed to sprucing things up a bit. In fact, she would quite enjoy it. In speaking with Milton Potlitzer, she would talk about an upcoming role that was quite different from her usual fare. For the first time in my life, I'm getting excited about nice clothes, she said. You ought to see my new dinner dress. Heretofore, I had to look just as homely as I am. In thinking of the camera, the worse my facial angle, the better. But in my latest picture, I had to worry about getting the best possible facial angle to look well like a gold digger ought to look, to be successful and at that same time to preserve the comic character. As with many Keystone actors, Fazenda's star soon grew larger than Senate was willing to pay for, and she left the studio in early 1920s for better roles and more money. She took a break from making motion pictures in 1921 and 1922 in order to give a shot to vaudeville. She married Hal B. Wallace, then a publicist and ex-newspaper man in 1927. This was her second marriage, though her first, though the first that many folks never knew about. She accepted Wallace's proposal of marriage in a speech before the National Press Club in Washington, closing her talk to the club members and a radio audience. She said, I appreciate you newspaper men. In fact, I have such an appreciation of newspaper men that I think I'll marry one when I get back to California. Press clubbers laughed, unaware that she was actually serious. Her transition into talking pictures led to more serious roles. By the advent of sound pictures, Fazenda was a highly paid actress, making movies for nearly all the big studios. Fazenda continued through the 1930s, appearing mostly in musicals and comedies. Her skill was in performing character roles. She played such diverse parts as a fussy old maid and even a blacksmith. Now, During the darkest four years of the World War II, though, the Wallaces roomed and boarded two British children. It was awful to give them back, Fazenda said. But of course, they had their own families. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more later in the episode about her philanthropic affairs, but that's just a little taste of how giving and caring Louise Fazenda was. But we're not going to leave this biography without some more down-to-earth tidbits about the private Louise Fazenda. Marion Lake gets us to this deeper look at the famous funny woman and shows that celebrities are just like us. Lake writes, we continued to prod Louise with gentle questions and discovered that she is crazy about fried scallops and Russian novels and holy roller meetings and canned clams, that she boasts of a bracelet of elephant hair that an admiring fan has sent her from Belgium, and that she likes men pretty well. Her last film appearance came in The Old Maid, a Betty Davis picture released in 1939. As of 1949, Fazenda, her husband, and their son Brent lived on 30 acres in the San Fernando Valley, 10 miles from Hollywood. A high brick wall surrounded the home, and visitors used a telephone at the gate to call for admittance. Inside, the article said, are such movie musts as a swimming pool and elaborate landscaping, but the hostess is as friendly as any Hoosier farmwife and proud of her home. So, now we're going to hit the pause button on our Fazenda facts and turn our attention to this film's antagonist, James Finlayson. The future actor was born in Larbert, Scotland in, on August 27, 1887. This early portion of his life in Scotland would see him get his start in show business on the stages of Edinburgh in 1910. With both parents dead, he would emigrate to the United States in 1911 at the age of 24. 
he would make this trip with his brother Robert. May of 1912 saw Finlayson take to the stages of New York City. Soon, he was making a name for himself under the bright lights of Broadway. By now, though, the power of the cinema was taking hold, and Finlayson saw the opportunities available to him. Finlayson arrived in Los Angeles in 1916 and worked at Thomas Ince Studios before finding work for Max Sennett. He appeared in a bunch of Sennett-produced comedies, even making an appearance as a Keystone cop. Here, he worked alongside Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy and developed his own persona with a trademark mustache and the catchphrase, Doe, many, many years before Homer Simpson would lay claim to it. Finlayson would leave Senate without really hitting the heights he thought he was capable of. In need of a change of scenery and perspective, Finlayson was hired almost immediately by Senate's rival, Hal Roach. All, to all told, Finlayson played roles in over 30 Laurel and Hardy films, usually as a villain or an antagonist, serving over a long period of time in such films as 1929's Big Business and Way Out West in 1937. On top of all that, he starred alongside Stan Laurel in 19 films and opposite Oliver Hardy in five films before Laurel and Hardy were even teamed together. He appeared in a dozen of Roach Studio films with Charlie Chase, Glenn T Tryon, Snub Pollard, and Ben Turpin, and as well as several Our Gang shorts. Finlayson later played uncredited bit parts in films such as Foreign Correspondent in 1940, 1942's To Be or Not To Be, and 1951's The Royal Wedding. He was often called upon for silent comedy reunions, like 1939's Hollywood Cavalcade and 1947's The Perils of Pauline. On the personal side of things, Finlayson married Emily Gilbert, an American from Iowa in 1919, and became a U.S. citizen in 1942. As for the death of Mr. Finlayson, English actress Stephanie Insall and Finlayson re regularly took breakfast together. However, on the morning of October 9, 1953, Finlayson did not turn up at the usual time. Knowing that he had been ill from the flu recently, Insall went to his home where she discovered his body. He had died of a heart attack. He was 66 years old. Now that we've taken a trip down memory lane with the stars of the film, let's talk about one of the directors of Down on the Farm. Yes, that is right. We have multiple directors on this picture. And for this biography, we're going to learn about director number one, Earl C. Kenton. Some of you eagle-eared horror fans out there may recognize that name, but if not, let's have some biographical fun. Earl Cawthorn Kenton was born on August 1st, 1896 in Norborn, Missouri. Kenton's show business career would start in the employ of comedy impresario Max Sennett. In fact, Kenton even has an appearance as a Keystone cop on his early resume. Eventually, though, he moved his focus and ambitions to the other side of the film camera. Like many, of a, like many a director of this era, he had to work his way up the ladder. That meant gigs as a gag man and assistant director, before finally finding his way to the director's chair and helming a series of two real comedies. Kenton worked the shorts detail for about a year before moving on and up to direct feature productions. As far as I could find, down on the Farm in 1920 was his feature debut. Though, post-1920, he would still direct a ton of shorts. By 1925, the ratio certainly started tilting towards that full-time feature-length work. Though, though his early career was focused on comedy, 
it was his forays into the horror world that produced some cinematic classics. It started in 1932 when Kenton came on aboard to direct Paramount's adaptation of the H.G. Wells literary classic, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was filmed as Island of Lost Souls. This film counted the likes of Charles Lawton, Richard Arlen, and Bela Lugosi amongst its cast. Kenton worked tirelessly through the 30s in non-horror projects before heading to Universal to take a crack at their ever-expanding monster universe. He would helm a trio of frightening flicks for Universal in the early to mid-40s. He would direct 1942's The Ghost of Frankenstein, 1944's House of Frankenstein, and finally 1945's House of Dracula. Despite killing it with horror over the first half of the 40s, he also snuck in some comedic films with comedy legends over that same stretch of time. Kenton directed two Abbott and Costello films in 1942, and with the rise of television, Kenton got his fair share of credits on the small screen before officially retiring in 1960. After a career spanning 40-odd years and 76 films, Earl C. Kenton died on January 28, 1980 at the age of 83, after a battle with Parkinson's disease. Now that we know a bit more about the folks responsible for Down on the Farm, let's take a look at that farm fresh film they produced. So, our film starts with some great aerial footage of what I presume to be Max Sennett Studios. It's pretty cool looking at drone shots in the bygone drone-free era. Now, we're getting this special feature in five parts, produced by the aforementioned Max Senate. If you want to hear a bit about Senate, just hop in over to our Extra Girl episode. Uh, that's a really fun episode um, where we actually go a little bit more in-depth into the life of Max Senate. So if you want to learn a little bit more about him, definitely hit up that episode. But for now, we're talking about Down on the Farm. And it was directed by Earl Kenton, who we talked about earlier, and Ray Gray and supervised by Max Sennett. It was photographed by Fred Jackman and Perry Evans. Before heading too deep into this movie, it seems unfair to chat about one of the directors and not the other. So in an effort to have peace of mind and a clear conscience, let's talk a little bit about Ray Gray. So Raymond Standish Gray was born on February 19th, 1890 in San Diego, California. Like Kenton, Gray got his start in show business as an actor in Max Sennett's Keystone Studios. His first role was in 1916, and by the early 20s he was directing mostly shorts with Down on the Farm being the only feature-length film I could find. However, he was an assistant director on a large number of other pictures, many of those being shorts. Though he didn't do it much, he is one of the credited writers of Down on the Farm, which is pretty cool. Ray Gray was the father of actress Virginia Gray. And then despite his early success, Gray would die on April 18, 1925 in Glendale, California at the incredibly young age of 35. As far as cast, we are introduced to Bert Roach playing the farmer, James Finlayson playing the man with the mortgage, Henry Gribben playing the hired hand, Billy Armstrong playing a gentleman, a baby playing John Henry Jr., this is a, an interesting listing, uh, and we're going to discuss it later, but for now, that's we're just going to leave it at a baby. Uh, Mary Prevost, a housewife, and also Pepper the Cat and Teddy the Dog. We will check in with Teddy a bit later as well. The film opens with our introduction to the shining star of this picture, Miss Louise Fazenda, who appears as the farmer's daughter. She is imagining herself a lady of means, living the life of luxury, 
only to snap back to life and the reality of her farm life. Just a note, one of the things that annoys me about some silent films is their lack of proper names. As someone who tries to pass these stories and narratives onto you fine folks, not having proper names stinks. It makes typing and such so much more convoluted and confusing. So having said that, I am just going to refer to the farmer's daughter as Louise and the mortgage man as James. That just seems to be the path of least resistance. So, we're set at the time. It's dawning. The sun was rising in the east, as is its custom. We see the world of the farm. Roosters, cows, pigs. But as dawn comes, a farm a farmhand's fancy lightly turns to the thoughts of milk. The hired hand, who I believe is named Montague, is milking the cow while also shooting streams of milk into Teddy the dog's mouth. The pigs seem to be pretty upset that they are not getting any of that milk. Montague fills a bucket which Teddy takes in his mouth and delivers to the thirsty piggies. This is where we first get to see the spotlight on Teddy. There are definitely points in this film where you would think he was the main character, and this is totally one of them. Soon, Montague hands the reins of the cow over to Teddy. We are told Teddy watched all night, then worked all day. He is walking the cow back to its pen. Then he grabs a bucket, fills it with water, but the bucket has a hole in it, and all the water pours out. If at first he doesn't succeed, try another bucket, which is exactly what he does. He fills this new and better bucket up with water and returns it to the cow who appreciates having a drink. Now let's take a quick sidetrack into one of the major stars of this film, Teddy the Dog. Teddy was also known as Keystone Teddy and one of the biggest stars at the studio. He was in rarefied air joining Fatty Arbuckle and Mabel Norman by having his name in the title of a film. That came with 1917's Teddy at the Throttle. He was a Great Dane that weighed 145 pounds and stood 42 inches tall. On set, he was often known to behave more professionally than many of the humans that worked in those same films. He is credited with at least 60 film appearances between 1915 and 1924. Sadly, Teddy died on May 17, 1925, aged 14, at the home of his trainer, Joseph Simpkins. We return our attention back to the farmer's daughter, Louise. Beneath her torn hat glowed the wealth of corn-fed beauty and rustic health. This is a fun bit with Louise planting seeds in the field. The only issue is that a bunch of, dugs, a bunch of ducks are walking right behind her, picking up a good meal of the seeds she is trying to lay down. She has them back and forth with these hungry ducks, which leads to her being thrown into a running of the bulls situation, but with hundreds of ducks. And in numbers, there is strength, the ducks prove to us. This is the first time in the film that I realized I was seeing something special with Louise Fazenda. She was fantastic here, and definitely holds her own against some of the more well-known film comedians of the day. She has an innate sense of how she comes across on screen. With a quick look or a wild turn, she really is able to get the most comedic angle possible. And her interplay with a bunch of ducks was impressive, since I feel like ducks are probably pretty tough to work with on set. Now, she is saved from this running of the ducks by Montague, the hired hand, who sees this heroism as a chance to impress Louise. In fact, it's the chance he's been looking for. Not one for wasting time, he asks her, Will you be my wife? I'm stuck for an answer, she replies since she is still stuck from her run-in with the angry ducks. He gets her down, and you see some cute flirtation between the two, and we definitely see some affection between the two. Her father, Farmer Roach, 
sees this canoodling and flirting from a distance. And let me tell you, he is not impressed. They run off and try to hide from her father, only for them to fall in a small creek or river or body of water. He stays underwater as Farmer Roach pulls his drenched daughter out of the drink. Where is that loafer, he asks her. Farmer Roach sees Montague and chucks a rock at him, blasting him in the head, and his unconscious body floats away. And we laugh as a man dies before our very eyes. I'm just kidding. The hired hand will be back shortly for more shenanigans. Next, we meet the village landlord, a.k.a. the mortgage guy, a.k.a. James, played by James Finlayson. Here he is up, coming up to this house to collect rent money that he is due. The housewife he is collecting from tells him, My husband has it, but he's away. Apparently, she used that excuse last month as well. In an effort to maximize his role in this power dynamic, James the mortgage man gets all skeezy. He sees a cute lady in need of assistance and figures it's the perfect time to take advantage of her. Oh, we can arrange this little matter, he tells her with a sly grin on his face. She fears he will toss them out, but assures her he won't. Then he starts to physically take liberties with her. He chases her around the house a bit. We get some of the usual slapsticky chase shenanigans, which I found oddly interesting considering this chase bit was happening in such close quarters. They maximized this little house set and turned out some good old chasing adventures, I guess you could say. Now, this chase eventually ends with a big, tough-looking dude walking into the house with a basket. The mortgage man is now incredibly worried, as this might be her husband. He tries to make small talk with the man he presumes to be the housewife's husband. He tells the burly man that he is here to collect the rent. Why tell me, he responds. Aren't you her husband? James asks. Why, well, no, I'm the grocery man, he replies. Mortgage dude sighs a big sigh of relief and tells the man to get lost and peddle his prunes somewhere else. With the interloper gone, he can return to his pursuit of the unattended housewife. He even props a chair under the doorknob to keep the real husband out. There's a sound. It's her husband, her real husband. She tells him that he will kill him if he finds him here. The door is being pushed and blasted open. The chair is barely hanging in there, and the mortgage man James is terrified. Some brutish powerhouse of a man is obliterating this door. It finally gives and pushes open. It is her husband. This beast of a man is played by Ben Turpin, who, if you didn't know, is not a behemoth by any stretch of the imagination. Since this is a comedy film, we would be remiss not to mention Ben Turpin, Though you may know Turpin for his permanently crossed eyes and amazing physical comedy, his story is wildly fascinating in and of itself. Bernard Turpin was born in New Orleans, Louisiana on September 19, 1874. He was a bit of a late bloomer in the film world, though. He got his entertainment start in vaudeville before starting films at the age of 38. This debut came in 1907, joining SNA Studios shortly after the company began operating in Chicago. He also spent some of that time as a company janitor for a bit. Multi-talented, this fellow was. He stayed with the company for two years, but never quite hit the big time. In 1917, he joined up with Max Sennett, which was a perfect home for his unique brand of slapstick and physical humor. Through the 20s, he would become one of the film world's most popular comedy acts. With the oncoming sound wave, he left film for the most part. He would make an occasional cameo here and there, but was out of the game largely. 
Turpin would die on July 1st, 1940 of a heart attack and is currently, and I guess always has been, interred in the Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Glendale, California. Back to movie action, you remember the husband, Ben Turpin, has come home and will be angry to find a skeezy businessman trying to take liberties with his wife, and so he comes in and that that landlord, the mortgage man, James, is hiding under a table of which Ben Turpin pulls him out. James is not impressed by the husband. Is this what I'm afraid of, he asks the wife. He tells the husband to pay the rent, which he does. You would think this would be the end, but it is not. As James takes his cash and leaves, he still tries to make out with the wife on his way out, at which point the husband beats the ever-loving crap out of the dude and sends him on his way. The film rolls on. A farmer's dissipation. Pie for breakfast. So what we have here is Farmer Roach preparing to have his pie for breakfast in his general store. Unfortunately, he gets sidetracked and Pepper the Cat sneaks in and starts chomping down on said pie. Pepper, we are told, will take anything not nailed down. And she certainly lives up to that. So we've talked about how Teddy the dog definitely steals the show in this movie, but Pepper the cat definitely does some good work. In fact, our cat, our office cat Soda, was quite enamored with Pepper. He has recently started becoming infatuated with seeing other animals on television, and seeing Pepper eat the pie captured his attention. So I guess that's got to count for something in the review portion the cats love the animals. Nice little Pepsi, come to Popsy, the farmer urges the cat. Pepper is not having any of it, though, and runs off. Next, we see James back in action, the mortgage man back in action, and on, on his way to collect more money. He is riding a horse into town, but he is riding too fast, and the local bicycle cop hops in pursuit of him. Who, uh, James, who appears to be unsafe at any speed, Slow down! You're pinched! The policeman yells. You find out the cop is getting sick of all these reckless guys on the streets. He protests the ticket he is given, but told to take it up with the judge. The mortgager, James, arrives in town and pulls up in front of Papa Roach's store. He embarrasses himself in front of the townsfolk by falling off the horse. Not letting the simple townsfolk harsh his mellow, he struts into the store and demands Farmer Roach pay the mortgage at once. Farmer Roach hems and haws, and his daughter, Louise, walks in. James remarks how pretty she is and that she must take after her mother. While all this is going on, Pepper the Cat is chasing a huge bug. Once Louise sees the bug, she freaks out, which in turn leads to some great physical comedy that pretty much destroys the entire inside of her father's store, merchandise and all. James catches her, stopping this mass destruction. He uses the moment to flirt and impress the young lady. She wants none of it, while James sees it as her wanting him so badly. Ever crafty and lonely, James makes an indecent proposal to Farmer Roach. I'll marry your daughter and call the mortgage off, he explains. I need a new cook anyway. Ain't he a charmer, folks? Louise's Eve just dropping and can't believe it. Her father seems to think it might work for the greater good. And to sweeten the pot, James throws in, and I'll board with you. Louise is in her room, worried. She picks up an ad for Dagger Brand Collars, where we are told, you furnish the neck, we furnish the collar. 
and it has a picture of a handsome man on it. This ad suggests a plan to Louise. Writing herself a letter to damage her reputation and avoid marriage is her course of action, and no doubt it will work and the movie will be over soon. Or not, and there will be much comedy and mistaken identity yet to come. So, let's find out. Her father comes in in an attempt to persuade her into this sham marriage. We're going to marry the landlord, he proclaims. James comes in as the farmer leaves. James tries to do all the wooing he can, including being nice enough to tell her that she'll be more of a wife than a servant. Farmer Roach seems happy that he will soon be financially in the clear. The hired hand, Montague, after the, who was after the daughter's hand, fears her father's foot, we are told, as he is looking all over for her. He makes his way into the store and asks his boss and her father if he can have the next day off to marry his daughter. Needless to say, this does not go well, and comedic violence erupts and innocent people end up harmed. But it's all hilarious, so we'll let it go. We're back in the room with the potential couple as it is time to unleash her scheme to get rid of James. She has cut out the picture of the collar guy and handed it to James as if it is a picture of her beloved. He laughs it off, then she gives him the letter. It reads, My darling Louise, the joke's on you. Our secret marriage was a fake, but I'll do the right thing and go back to my first wife. Signed, Jake. P.S. Girly, marry some small-town boob in your own class and try to forget me. Seeing and reading this, James plans to abort this marriage. It was a close call, he thinks. He is no small-town boob. Louise explains he was the guy who painted their barn, and James has had enough and walks out. Oh, goody, he believes it, she says gleefully as she dances around her room. James breaks the news to Farmer Roach. He explains everything and shows the farmer the evidence. He thinks the farmer was in on it. Trying to slip her to me for a first-class mortgage, eh, he says. Before storming out, James says he will be back the next day to put them all out on the street. Make your reservations for the poorhouse, he yells as he walks out. Farmer Roach is quite upset with his daughter at this point and tells her, Popsy has something for you, and then proceeds to chase her with a fishing pole. This chase goes all over the farm, and eventually, Montague, the hired hand, gets caught up in it. Finally caught up to her, he asks the hired, he asks the hired hand, Montague, if he wants her. He says yes, to which Farmer Roach replies, Sold! and storms off, and the two lovebirds kiss. Next, we take a bit of a narrative detour, which will eventually reconnect with our main story. Remember that baby we mentioned earlier? This is his first appearance in the film. In the film, he is called John Henry Jr., but he was played by Don Marion. At this point, he is spraying a water hose at some ducks. He is the cutest little thing. Lost, strayed, or stolen, we're told, as he walks all over the farm, getting caught up in all sorts of shenanigans. Eventually, he is chased by a horde of turkeys. Next, ducks are after him as he scuttles about. He is saved by Teddy the dog, who fights off a duck in a pretty intense fight scene. This kid ends up doing some death-defying stunts, as he walks on all sort of dangerous scaffoldings, ladders, bridges, as Teddy looks on, worried, but stuck behind a wooden door. He is super alert and trying to help. This baby was doing crazy stuff in this bit. I like to hope things were done safely, but you never know back in this day and age. However they figured out to make it look like this baby was in danger was top-notch. 
I definitely had bouts of anxiety watching him stumble over rushing water or in the back of a truck, which we're going to see later. If you happen to know how some of these shots were done, please drop us a message. It looked terrifying, and I would love to be put at ease knowing a child was not in that much danger. Eventually, though, Teddy dismantles the door, again, which is incredibly impressive for what a dog can do, and escapes and follows the baby so he can protect him if need be. He eventually ends up on the scaffolding, like I talked about earlier, and picks up the baby by his pants and carries him to safety. We are back with Louise for her wedding day and are told that during the course of human events, there is an occasional wedding. Some marry in haste and never regret it. Some marry for love and then don't get it. Everyone is dressed up and the wedding is a go. We get some great understated comedy from Louise Fazenda here. Really fun but subtle stuff. It really is amazing how these great comedic talents can convey so much with the smallest movements or a simple look. When it comes to the time for the ring, Montague can't seem to find it. He tells Farmer Roach that he has it. Eventually, the ring is located and about to be put on when James makes his way into the store with some movers to kick the farmer and his daughter out on the street. At this point, the baby has made his way into the house via a back door and into Louise's room as a man hops a fence in pursuit. Back in the store, though, a mailman delivers some mail, which James accepts. Whilst the role of the mailman seems small, as a wrestling fan, I have to point out it was played by Kala Pasha. That would be the stage and ring name of Detroit, Michigan professional wrestler Joseph T. Rickard, who was referred to in papers and in the ring as the Crazy Turk. He would take ring experience and parlay that into a career in vaudeville while also appearing in 74 films between 1919 and 1931. So back with the movie, James opens the letter. It reads, Dear Roach, your daughter Louise is heir to the $100,000 insurance of her late uncle, Ignatz Farnham, the circus owner, signed Will Steele, attorney. P.S. The end came unexpectedly. Although he had been cautioned about, although he had been cautioned about teasing elephants. So, speaking of death by elephant, in 1994, circus elephant Tyke escaped the Circus International of Honolulu, Hawaii, on August 20th, 1994. During a performance, she killed her trainer, who was knocked down, dragged before being crushed to death, and seriously injured her groomer before breaking out and running through the streets of the Kaka'ako Central Business District for nearly 30 minutes. It took local officers 86 gunshots to finally bring Tyke down for good. Sorry for bringing down the mood of the wedding, the farm, the shenanigans, the hijinks, but death at the circus is real. It is legit. But as they're reading this letter, James reconsiders his broken engagement with Louise. He sees a few bucks to be made out of this whole operation. He wants her back and storms into the wedding. He pulls Montague aside to play some mind games. Do you remember when the barn was painted, he asks the hired hand. James goes on to explain Louise's affair with him in order to sow seeds of discontent. Montague wants no part of this marriage. He walks out and thanks James for telling him everything. Farmer Roach is furious with James, but can't do much on account of James still holding the mortgage. James claims his spot next to Louise and orders the priest to continue the ceremony, saying he will answer for the both of them. 
Montague, having picked up having picked up his belongings to leave, walks past the ceremony. He throws his stuff down when he realizes he's been had. Ah, so that's your game, eh? He questions James. Now infuriated by James, Montague grabs what looks like a battle axe off the wall and starts going after James. The wedding breaks down into pure anarchy. Montague is only going for headshots at James during this chase. While this madness is going on, Louise is locked up in her room. A well-dressed man enters through the back door. He tells Louise he is looking for his baby. She doesn't answer, but looks closely at him. It's him. It's the man from the collar ad. Follow me, she tells him as they head out through, back through the door to the outside. He thinks she is crazy. She thinks that he thinks she is crazy. So this battle between Montague and James is still being waged, though it finally slows down. Separated and no longer fighting, Montague heads to Louise's room to see his fiance. But the first face he sees is the picture of her fantasy former husband. He realizes it's him too. Romeo is here, Montague tells Roach, James, and the priest. They all head over. Just as they're about to bust in, Louise sees Pepper chasing a mouse, which terrifies her. She passes out, and the collar guy catches her. They open... The men, Montague, Roach, James, the priest, they open her door at this exact second to see him holding her as she is now passed out. He sets her on the bed, oblivious to everything that has transpired. He tells them he's just looking for his baby. Suffering catfish, they've got a child, Montague moans and breaks down in tears. This is an asylum, the, caller, the man with the collar explains. Montague thinks for a moment. Wasn't it a fake marriage, he asks? Now all the men are furious with the collar guy for putting Louise through a sham marriage. They are all about to fight him as he calls them idiots and walks out. They block him from leaving and question him about the letter and the painting business. He distracts them and runs off with them in pursuit. As all the men are getting fired up and getting ready to fight and getting aggressive and strange people coming in and babies, the whole story is getting crazy, we turn our attention back to Louise, who decided this is probably a good time to, to leave. She runs out and starts up a car and drives off just seconds after the baby had crawled into a box on the back of the car. Her father sees this as Louise speeds off. The collar guy slash father grabs a motorbike and takes off right behind her in pursuit to get his baby back. The rest of the guys pile into another car to chase the collar guy who is chasing his baby who is in a box in the back of the car Louise is driving. The stuff they had this baby was doing nuts. Like we mentioned earlier, he was walking over a ramshackle bridge with crazy rushing water under it. And here he was doing crazy, I guess you could say fast and the furious style stunts on the back of a truck as he switched boxes during the big chase. And while we're on the topic of Fast and the Furious, there was absolutely some wild, wild stuff going on during this car, motorbike, car chase. Crazy stuff that needs to be seen that I really can't do justice here just chatting with you. During the chase, the baby switched boxes he was in. The original box he was hiding in flew off the back of the car before Louise eventually drives the car into a bale of hay. She and the collar guy ran to the fallen box, but it's empty, because they didn't know the baby had switched. Still in the back of the car, the baby emerges from his new box. He is laughing and laughing, demanding more ride, more ride. The two run over to the giddy baby. The others eventually catch up. 
they demand Louise marry Collar Guy now and make her an honest woman. Before things go any further, Louise confesses, it's all a lie. I did it to get rid of that boob of who she is talking about as James, the mortgage man. With everything breaking down, an exasperated Farmer Roach pleads, Will somebody please marry her? Montague happily steps up, but being the wet blanket he is, James the mortgage man says he still holds the mortgage. As James steps over to Louise, a paper falls out of his pocket. It is the letter that says Louise is inheriting $100,000 from her departed uncle. Just a quick FYI, that $100,000 in 1920 is the equivalent of almost $1.5 million today. It's been a while since we've done a good conversion on the show, so I could not pass that up. So it turns out James was scum and gets a solid yet comical whooping from Montague and Farmer Roach that ends with the mortgage man getting beaten into the ground, literally. It's a Sunday morning, six years later. The church bell is ringing as Louise and Montague lead their big family to church. And when I say big, I mean it. By my math, they had a set of twins every year of their marriage. There were six sets of two in descending ages walking behind the couple to the Lord's house. Well, it was all twins except the triplets bringing up the rear in a wagon pulled by Teddy and Grandfather Roach. And that is how this Max Senate special production comes to a close. Down on the Farm, it was released technically in 1919. It appeared at the Yost Theater in Santa Ana, California on December 28th through the 30th. Nationally, it was released three months later with it debuting at the Strand Theater in Fort Wayne, Indiana on April 4th, 1920. I really enjoyed this flick. Going in, I was expecting more farm tomfoolery, but it really ended up being a weird rom-com, which was a fun surprise. Louise Fazenda was a revelation. She was fantastic, and you could tell this was her film from the get-go. She killed it. She had the skills that elevated the art of physical comedy. She really did show little acting touches and flourishes that made her performance more than just usual slapstick. Marion Lake, who we mentioned earlier, also thought her performance was great. She brings up the fact that the money of the filmgoer was important, and Fazenda knew it. Lake would write, She understands the countless number of us who must, in, who must buy our enjoyment with nickels and dimes. I think the best final thing I can say about this movie is that it was fun. It was nothing earth-shattering or mind-blowing, but it was fun. And after that 15-minute runtime, I had a smile on my face. And when you watch a movie, that's about all you can ask for, is to have fun and leave with a smile on your face. I also have to shout out the various animals that were involved in this film. Teddy was amazing. He did stuff that I've never seen a movie dog do, and he really did seem to act like a human who didn't know he was a dog. I wasn't the only one super impressed by those animals. In fact, uh, famous movie paper Variety felt the same. Variety chimed in on the April 21st, 1920, with their review of the farm film. The article reads, Animals shine in Senate photo play. Max Senate's big five-reel comedy photo play down on the farm is at the kinema here. The comedy is abundant throughout, with Louise Fazenda the dominant player. The entire cast is good, but is outshone by the animal actors, especially the dog Teddy, with an intelligence almost human. Portions of the story are very dramatic, especially a scene with a child carried over a waterfall rescued by the dog. 
Senate has overlooked nothing in the five reels of entertainment and includes suspense, thrills, laughs, etc. The promotional newspaper article for the 1920 premiere of Senate's Down on the Farm refers to Finlayson as a legitimate and screen player of international celebrity and of his performance as the villain in the case, a sort of cross between a Turkish Don Juan and a loan shark, is played with rare power and comic results of seriousness by James Finlayson. Prints exist of this film at the Library of Congress Film Archive and in the Museum of Modern Art Film Archive, which we mentioned at the top of the show. So, as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite cinematic comedians on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, the celebrity spectacle converge, and where are they now? Your guide to paying your respects to the funny folk that have entertained us so much. Now, Fazenda's last screen appearance came in 1939. She spent the remainder of her years enjoying life as an art collector until her death of cerebral hemorrhage. Now, she died of that cerebral hemorrhage in Beverly Hills, California on April 17, 1962. She was interred at the Inglewood Park Cemetery in Inglewood, California. At her funeral, many stories were told of Fazenda's volunteer work, such as caring for children at UCLA Medical Center and taking in those two children during World War II. Marion Lake once wrote, It is because of all that, because success is not meant to her what it meant to almost every other actress, a limousine and luxuries and nothing but clothes and more clothes, that she will prove enduring has proved enduring. She is, above all things, human. She reaches down to those of us, and we are the great majority, who must find our enjoyment in just those things that she enjoys herself. Things that are not necessarily expensive because they are amusing. In the April 21st, 1962 edition of the LA Times, it took the death of Louise Fazenda to gain a new perspective on the comedian. All her life, she had kept many of her philanthropic activities out of the spotlight. She helped others with no intention of getting her name in the paper or her name in the news. She helped people that needed it, and now, with no way to hide it, the world could see what she had done. The LA Times wrote, In 1954, friends said, She read in the Times of a five-year-old, she read in the Times of a five-year-old girl hospitalized after the death of her mother in the same auto accident. Miss Fazenda read of it and paid all the expenses. The LA Times continues, A law student decided he'd have to drop out of school because his wife was expecting a baby. Instead, Miss Fazenda took up the bills. The actress would even go to the UCLA Medical Center where she would feed the young children, sing to them, and even rock them to sleep. A friend of Fazenda's recounted, About a year ago, there was a little boy who wouldn't eat. The doctors were really worried about him, but Louise would run back and forth to her home, trying out different dishes, different flavors, and then coax him. He recovered. Her funeral was attended by friends and contemporaries, including many notable film industry legends, from Zazu Pitts and Joan Blondell to Hal Roach and Edward G. Robinson, amongst many others. In the summer of 58, the career of Louise Fazenda was celebrated on the walkways of Hollywood. On August 15, 1958, Fazenda received a star on the world-famous Hollywood Walk of Fame. If you want to pay your respects and say a little thank you, you need go no further than 6801 Hollywood Boulevard. And before we leave the topic of philanthropy behind, the UCLA Medical Auxiliary 
created a memorial fund in her honor on account of her amazing abundance of volunteer work. As this episode winds down, we leave the fresh air for Times Square. We want to thank you for sharing this folksy and down-home adventure with us. It's always really amazing to happen on a film star who definitely doesn't get the modern-day press and respect they deserve. Luis Fazenda is fascinating on so many different levels, and I hope this episode of the Golden Silent Films podcast lights that beacon that brings a little more attention to this incredibly talented movie star. Did you enjoy your stay on the farm? What are some of your favorite Luis Fazenda pictures? Who are some of your favorite silent era funny people? Let us know all of that and more at the various social media hangouts of the Golden Silent Films podcast. On that note, if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you think about this episode. What movies, past or present, farm or no farm, do you want us to dive into next? Our world of silence is constantly expanding, and we need your input to plan out our future views as we head into an exciting third season. You can do all of that at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence One on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe to us, rate us, review us. It helps us like crazy here, and we love hearing your thoughts. We super, super appreciate all of your awesome support, and seeing how much all of you folks out there are listening only wants us, only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes for all of you. And all that being said. Thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And we are excited to bring you an awesome third season. And we've got a lot of cool stuff in the pipeline, so definitely come back. And don't forget, the silence are golden and the talkies, they're just a fad. If you like, Louise Fazenda once told writer David Reagan... You may say that I am the luckiest person in the world. I have a nice home. I have a wonderful husband, a fine son, and more friends than I deserve. I am so terribly lucky, and I know it.